Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Heather Lamar from the University of Minnesota School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Dr. Lamar studies the uses and effects of media on attitudes, behaviors, and opinions regarding social and political issues. We asked for her take on the intersection of politics and humor as we move toward the next election. This conversation is also part of our new feature on the Society pages called Round Tables. Check online for a discussion from five other scholars on this very same topic. project, we really wanted to understand the social scientific take on the effects of consuming all this political humor in its many forms. So to get this conversation started, I first asked Dr. Lamar what she saw as the most dominant type of political humor that we see today. So when you think about forms, you can think about this two different ways. You can think about the form as in satire versus um, non-satirical, almost sort of slapstick or something else. And if you want to think about it that way, the actual sort of comedic device, satire is the reigning form right now. And we can attribute that to probably the Dennis Millers, George Carlins of the world really made it popular in the, in the more current times. But Jon Stewart has turned it into an industry and Stephen Colbert together they're the tag team of late night satire so but even in animation with south park american dad it's a lot of satire Mm -hmm. so that is the dominant form when you think of comedic device when you think of form as in how they're using satire it's really expanding all over the place we have some satire there was even a satirical film um that was made to sort of contradict sicko uh, Kelsey Grammer starred in it. There's so we have it in feature-length film form. We have satire and animation. We have satire in late-night television, and of course, stand-up comedy is the king of satire. So it's kind of it depends how you want to mm-hmm. define form, but that's what's going on right now. Now, what sense do you have of the limits of what's like appropriate topically um, about you know political humor, and, and what do these limits tell us? Well. Again, there, the thing about humor, and, and satire in particular, is that one of the comedian's role is to test limits. And right now we have that going on with Colbert's Super PAC. This would be a perfect example of limit testing. Never before can I think of that in a time when um, a piece of satire was taken outside the comedic, you know, outside the actual form. And he has now created satirical PSAs. He's raising real money. Real people are actually contributing their real dollars to this satirical super PAC. Mm-hmm. And then he's using those those monies to create satirical PSAs, to raise awareness. He was on this week with George Stephanopoulos. Um, he's raising, it's called intermedia agenda setting. So he's forcing the media to pay attention because he's moving outside of his late night show. Mm-hmm. That's limit testing we've never seen before. Now, to answer your question specifically, I don't know. Uh, one of the studies ongoing for the 2012 election year that myself and a colleague, Amber Day, up at Bryant University are doing is to understand at what point he's crossing the line. Mm-hmm. Kathleen Hall Jameson, who's up at Penn, has said she sees this as potentially devastating to 
um, I'm not quoting her exactly, but she sees it as problematic, I should say, rather than devastating, to uh, society and to political campaign finance in particular, because it has real implications for real dollars being taken out of the system. Um, and you can even look at the implications of, I don't know if you watched or saw any part of the Fox News debate of the Republican Party the other Tuesday night, but campaign finance was discussed at length by the candidates and super PACs. So limit testing, that's my best example of current limit testing that's affecting society. But to answer what are the limits, we don't know. We know that there's some things. We know that something like when um, there's some religious limits, we saw what happened with the when people tried to um, basically create humor in comedy strips about Muhammad, the prophet. We saw that that became a life-threatening situation for those people. Um, we've seen that when people try to... Um, do anything comedic after a national event like 9-11. There's a mourning period, and but we don't really know what that grace period is, how long mm-hmm. you know it is before the nation's healed enough that they're ready to laugh. Mm-hmm. We can't, those are things that we just, as social scientists, haven't really figured out yet because there's so many variables, and yeah. it just depends on who you're going to offend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so thinking a bit historically, has humor always played a key role? I'm thinking more specifically in election times. Has humor always been a dominant part of elections, or would you consider this a more contemporary? No, you can go back to all the way back to ancient Greece, and they tried to outlaw satire. And they said, <laughs> I mean, back then it was not obviously, we didn't have television. It wasn't mediated. Right. It was face-to-face. But it was in writing and uh, face-to-face public oration and even satirical plays. I mean, you can go all the way back into the mystery plays and the ancient times. And what they were doing is they were using humor and satire back then to make moral and social points that affected politics. There were many, many rulers in ancient times that tried to outline and kill, actually imprison or behead um, comedians and satire uh, satirists because they felt that it was you know, at risk to their political power. So Mm -hmm. this is not new, Mm -hmm. certainly. And how about the media effects scholarship in this area? I mean, what do we know about today, the the effects of exposure to to satire and political humor? Well, there's a lot. That's probably what's new. Okay. So what's, what's old is more of the qualitative research that's been ongoing for a long time and understanding sort of how... Uh, humor in satire in particular can be used to get audiences worked up. But it's long been thought that the effect was limited because people used it in a cathartic way. They laughed at the comedian and they went home and went about their business. And it's only in probably since the 80s that we started doing effects research, Mm -hmm. looking at what happens after they leave the play or they leave the stand-up comedy or they turn that show off at night and how does it affect their lives daily. In that area, we are starting to understand a couple basic things. One is message receptivity. Mm-hmm. People have their guard down when they're there to be entertained yeah. rather than be informed. They sort of put their guard down. They're more relaxed. So they're more open and receptive to messages that maybe otherwise, in for example, if they're watching a political debate or a political ad, they would start counter-arguing and debating against in their own mind. In humor, what humor sort of disarms them and allows that to come in without them actively counter-arguing mm-hmm. it. We know that has an effect on that. 
we know that humor, what I was talking about before with the super PAC, humor is also having an effect, especially the late night comedy duo there of Colbert and um, John Stewart, on forcing the media to pay attention mm-hmm. to issues that otherwise they maybe would like to ignore or aren't top of their agenda at the time. So it's having broad social implications that way. We know that young people more and more want to be entertained, and they're used to this sort of media fusion of entertainment and information together. So there's this, it's called a gateway hypothesis, and the idea is that entertainment is a gateway or brings in the politically uninterested, Mm -hmm. especially young people. I wouldn't otherwise care about politics, but you're entertaining me, Mm -hmm. and so now I'm interested. And that leads to more information-seeking, participatory behavior, voting. Mm -hmm. So we've seen it affect a whole host of things. Those are the large social implications. There's a whole other level of individual effects research that's going on more in the social psychological experimental realm, trying to understand how people process the messages and how that affects their political ideology. Mm -hmm. So, and that leads right into my next question. Um, And it sounds like this does help people, younger people in particular, engage in politics, so maybe sort of a democratizing effect. But do you think it also creates apathy towards the political process? Is there a danger of that? Well, I think it can do both, certainly. And we don't... There's not enough research yet to know whether it's contributing to or taking away from a deliberative democracy. The question is... we So we there's a little bit of... Um, a debate in the literature about this, whether infotainment or uh, political entertainment and some or soft news even, even the softening and entertaining formats that cable news are producing now. Um, you can look at Anderson Cooper from Hard News Man at Night is now morning talk show host by day. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can look at Brian Williams doing the 30 Rock show. This softening of the hard news format, the question becomes we've answered the question of whether it engages audiences. We know that. But engages them how and to what end, we're not sure. In some cases, we find they learn more about the issues. In other cases, we find they don't understand the sarcasm or satire, so they come away misinformed. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, we find evidence that because, because comedians pull out segments or cherry pick segments and then use them to to an exaggerated point to make it funny, sometimes audiences don't understand that it was exaggerated. Perhaps one of the biggest issues is that this sort of shutting down of deliberative democracy where where people, like you said, people take away sort of this disgusted sense of the system and it can definitely relate to that, Mm -hmm. cause that. Mm -hmm. there's also maybe a popular perception that political humor is associated with liberal or left-leaning political parties, um, or maybe the more dominant forms. And A, do you, do you think that is true, or is that a misconception? And um, the broader question is, you know, who benefits from this humor then? What, what well, parties or politicians? So can we clarify the popular perception is that liberals are producing the humor or that liberal audiences are using it or do you think that? I think the production side okay. more so on the production side I or maybe actually, even the form of the jokes I think I disagree I would agree with you that that is the popular 
perception. Yeah. I would disagree with you that there's truth in that. Um, Whitney Walther's master's thesis looked at conservative stand-up comedy. Uh, and Chris Rock is an example of a person who is probably perceived, and he, he might even dispute this himself, he's probably perceived as being very liberal, but he has very socially conservative messages in his joke telling. Um, there has been Dennis Miller and uh, Louis Black, these are two, two comedians who are very, they have a lot of conservatism in what they do. Uh, Glenn Beck has millions and millions of people who follow him, who consider themselves to be social conservative, almost to the point of the evangelical, yet he uses sarcasm and humor. In fact, his whole catchphrase is the fusion of enlightenment and entertainment. He started out as a comedian. Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck did a road show a year ago with to sold out crowds across the entire country, and those are two of the most powerful and popular conservative commentators in America. So I think it is a misconception. I do think the misconception comes from the popularity of yeah. of um, John Stewart. Right. Right. Oh, and also we should add. Yeah. That in all my research, and I think everybody's research with John Stewart and mine with Colbert. Mm-hmm. There's a pretty even split across the ideological spectrum, and almost as many Republicans and conservatives enjoy, watch and enjoy those two comedians as liberals. So although we see them as being liberal, mm-hmm. audiences who are conservative still really find them funny and mm-hmm. watch them regularly. Hmm. That's, I didn't know that. That's really, That's mm-hmm. interesting. Um, how about an international angle? I mean, are shows like The Daily Show... A uniquely American product is this type of satire a contemporary American phenomenon, or do you think that this is there could be a global tone? And if this isn't your area, that's fine. Too. It's not. It's not exactly my area. I can't speak to. I know in Russia there's some satire. I know in of their you know of their own, but they. Um, I know that in um, some of the Western European yeah. cities, but you know British humor. I mean, I think especially pointed British humor has used this kind of form of humor to talk about the folly of society for a long time. So I don't think it's unique to the United States. Now, what I can say is dangerous about it from an international perspective is that we've seen instances where um, Chinese newspapers have misreported the onion and because they didn't understand that it was satire. And then when they had to print the retractions, the retractions would say something to the effect of, we're sorry, we got that wrong. Apparently, American journalists lie. <laughs> and, you know, so, oh, no. so what, that's it. <laughs> and that's nothing, that, what that is, right, that's lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that The Daily Show is one of the most highly exported cable television shows in Europe right now, especially in Germany. And um, when you're watching politically specific um, to American politics, current events, in a second language, then not only do you have to interpret the satire and understand the context and what it's being told, in which it's being told, and know all the players to get the joke, on top of it, you have to interpret the language barrier. So when you think about all those variables, it's very easy for these things to get picked up by foreign nations and create what's kind of what we've, what is thought of in entertainment media is the Dallas effect and that I don't know if you're familiar with the Dallas effect but that's the idea that um, 
everybody, you know, wears rhinestones and lives in giant palaces and we're all rich and we never work, which is from the exporting of the TV show Dallas. So misinterpretations and misunderstanding of American culture and life are sure to be a problem with mm-hmm. the exportation of our comedy. But I don't think it's unique to us. Right, right. And um, my last question is sort of the flip side of this. Um, what happens when politicians try to be funny? And have you, well, I mean, you know, if, if humor and satire is in the air, this election campaign and always has been, what happens when politicians try to, you know, jump into that ring? And um, do you think that can help or hinder a candidacy? I think it depends when you use it and do it. President Obama sent Betty White a happy birthday message yesterday, and um, he cracked a joke about wanting to see her birth certificate. And I myself found that hysterical yeah. <laughs> and I and it seemed to be you know it seemed to go over very well right so you know even the pre, even the leader of the free world can tell a joke mm-hmm. and but it is when I what we've seen sort of this crash and burn problem for politicians is when they use um sort of slapstick or really silly kind of humor that almost just really is seemingly beneath the level of the office right. that they hold. And we saw that a little bit. There was a politician in Colorado in 2010 that was using sort of um, the getting, I need to take a shower. Politics is such an icky business. I need to take a shower. And his uh, video went viral on YouTube. Yeah, I remember And this. really it backfired because yeah. people couldn't see him as a serious candidate anymore. No. So I think they have to be very careful, you know, in the context in which they tell the joke, the Betty White joke telling from President Obama is a perfect example of well-placed humor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the comedian, the com- comedic television ad is an example of what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are all the questions I have. Is there anything I didn't ask that you think would be relevant to this conversation? No, I think you have it a pretty good handle on it. I think the big question is going to be, whether people under 30, since they've sort of grown up in this era of political satire and entertainment, um, whether people under 30 are themselves as a generation developing a sense of humor about politics that's good for democracy or a disgust about politics that's bad for democracy. And that remains to be said. That's all for this episode of Office Hours. As Sarah said, this episode is part of a roundtable on politics and humor you can find at the societypages.org. Alongside a whole bunch of new features we've been rolling out, such as the TSP reading list. So go check it out and tell your friends, family, colleagues, students, everybody's welcome at the Society Pages. See you soon.